know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 149. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and today we have Bron Williams. And she is actually an unconscious biased specialist from Australia. And she's going to talk to us about unconscious bias and how that can sometimes sabotage the good work that we're trying to do unintentionally. And she's going to help us to take a look at some of our unconscious biases so that we can become more effective in the work that we do with people that are different from us in our communities and all over the world. So welcome, Bron. I'm so happy that you could join us here today. It's great to be here. Yeah, and so you're from Australia, and I know that you do a lot of work in the area of bias. And so I think that's so important to all of our work, um, no matter what we do. Bias is something that's going to affect um, how we treat other people. So how did you even get involved in, in this type of topic? Uh, look, that's such a great question. It wasn't something I set out to look for. Um, it was back in 2013, I hadn't even heard of the term unconscious bias. I was working with the Salvation Army at the time and the Australian government here had reopened offshore processing centres for uh, asylum seekers who arrived in Australia by boat. And so they had two centres. One was on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and the other was on Nauru, which is a small sovereign nation in the Pacific, um, 35 kilometres south of the equator. And I was a Salvation Army officer and an email went round to everybody. Who would put their hand up to do four weeks on the island because the Salvation Army was providing the welfare services? Now, I did put my hand up, not because I had a burning desire to work with asylum seekers or refugees or to work in the tropics, but because I couldn't think of a reason why not to. And it was one of those serendipitous decisions that we make that actually then has changed the course of my life. So I, um, I went to Nauru in November of 2013, stepped out into the tropical sun and thought, what on earth am I doing here? On the, uh, we had had a sort of midnight flight from Brisbane. It was about a four hours flight. We'd bumped down into Honiara in the Solomon Islands to refuel. And then it was around 10 o'clock in the morning that we landed on Nauru. Hot, smelly, there was jet fuel. I could smell the ocean. It's all of these very new um, experiences and stimuli. We spent the rest of the day doing um, our orientation. By this time, we'd been up over 24 hours and the last thing we needed to do was to go down into what was called the camp, 
see where we'd be working for the next 28 days. So we went in small groups, had a leader. We go through the gate, past the security guards, down through the rows of green army tents. And I could see lots of men. I knew there were about 400 men there at that time. They came from Sri Lanka, from Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, Iran and Iraq. And as I'm walking down through the tents, my stomach's starting to churn and my shoulders are getting tense and I'm thinking, what's going on? Like I was in my mid-50s at this stage, experienced quite a bit of life. So this actually surprised me. I hadn't experienced my body doing this before. And over the next uh, four weeks while I was on island, I was reflecting on why did I feel like that? And I came to the conclusion that was my body actually telling me that I was afraid. Now, I had never been in a physically, uh, in a situation where I needed to be physically afraid to have had that response before. And I didn't actually need to be physically afraid in this situation. These men were, had suffered trauma. They were escaping persecution. They were now, in a sense, locked up in detention. There were security guards everywhere. I was actually physically safe. I realised that because these men were different, like um, this white-skinned Aussie who only speaks English and comes from a Christian background, and, you know, all these men, all different shades of brown and black, speaking languages I don't understand, and most of them I knew came from Muslim countries. And I realised that... I was afraid because they were different. Somewhere along the line, in my growing up years, I'd learned that difference was a threat. And I came to the uncomfortable realisation that the woman who would have said she didn't have a racist bone in her body actually had a latent racism from growing up in a very white, monocultural, conservative, Bible Belt area of Sydney, Australia. So that was quite a shock to me to realise that that was sitting underneath the surface. And then I, um, so I did that volunteer, I did two volunteer stints and after the second one I actually asked the Salvation Army for a permanent appointment to Nauru. I really felt this is where I wanted to be and so I went back in June of 2013 um, as the religious liaison officer and now it was my job to look after the religious needs of all the asylum seekers. So, you know, if they were Hindus, Buddhists, um, Muslims, Zoroastrians, you know, it was my job to find the materials that they needed to help uh, with their religious faith because it was really understood that by helping their religious needs, they were going to help their mental health. So I did that, loved it. But I started to observe how the white expats, and most of us, there were some from New Zealand, but most from Australia, the attitude that we had, including myself, to the Nauruans who were part of our teams. Now, Nauru is this little island. It's 35 kilometres around. You can walk walk around it in about five hours, drive around it in half an hour. It's a tiny little island. And so there was this assumption that, you know, I'm an educated person. I've got a university education. I come from a uh, developed country. Of course, we would know better than Nauruans who may have only had a high school education and live in a developing country. And 
I was a bit concerned about that because, again, I didn't see myself as this superior sort of creature. Well, I, I was hoping I wasn't. And uh, so I sat down one day with Fatima, who was heading up the Nauruan team for the Salvation Army, and talked to her about it. And I was gobsmacked when she said, oh, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. Oh, so, wow. yeah, so this was this was huge. She reflected back to me as truth as to what, what I had been suspecting. And over the next few months while I was there, I started to look at, you know, well, white superiority and, of course, came across the term white privilege. So they were the two biases, racism and white privilege, that I didn't know I had. I didn't even know at that stage that they were biases and it took a few years. I ended up leaving the Salvation Army, not because there was any concerns, but because I really wanted now to pursue this direction because it literally had changed my life. So that's so since 2016, I've been really working in this field of looking at how do the unconscious things, the unconscious biases that have developed in our childhood, how are they now impacting our lives, our relationships, our decision-making? And what can we do about it? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I agree with you. And even to the to the core of a lot of the social justice movements we have and a lot of the social justice issues we work on. I mean, you went into the Salvation Army to help people yes. because you had a kind heart and you had a social consciousness about helping people. And, that, and we have that in the field of human trafficking, we want to help people, but sometimes we feel that we want to rescue them because we have some superiority, some idea that other people are victimized and we need, they need us. And sometimes we don't even look at our own lack of freedom and in various ways as women, as people of color, but sometimes because we are based in, and largely the listeners are based in the U.S., that somehow we are going to help the less fortunate because we have some kind of feeling that the way we live and our values and the things that, that we enjoy are somehow better um, than what other people around the world, not even traffic people, just people around the world, somehow the way we live and our values and things are somehow better or superior. And we're not even consciously aware of that. Uh, I completely agree with you that we have this saviour complex. Um, and I, I actually think it's a huge issue for those of us who have caring hearts because we do gravitate towards the caring professions and particularly in the not-for-profit space, it can be a huge issue. And as much as I loved the Salvation Army and what it did, I could really see that even within that wonderful organisation, the temptation to think that we had all the answers, that people who were drug addicted could only learn from us that we couldn't learn from them. And I think for me that has been one of the key learnings as I understand bias more is that 
Well, first of all, bias is always going to be with us. I don't believe we can actually get rid of it, but we can become aware of it. And that's why my tagline is making bias conscious. We can become conscious of it and aware of it. And as we do that, as we're aware of our own biases and the impact that they have on us, I actually think we open ourselves up then to possibilities of other ways of thinking. And as we do that, then we start to go, wow, what can I learn from somebody I may not have uh, before? And I know when I was working on Nauru, I I guess uh, someone will at that stage was a Christian minister of religion. Some of the most godly people, actually the person who comes to mind, is this big, tall, black African man who was on our team who was a Muslim, beautiful, humble, godly person. Now, I would never, ever have thought that someone who had such a completely different religion to my own that I could learn from them. And that's not because I'm this wonderful person, but because as I opened myself up to my limitations, I could see so much more. And I think that is available to all of us. I want to break into this podcast and ask you an important question. Why did you become so passionate about the issue of human trafficking? Because you know how precious freedom really is. And you know that if you could offer that to someone else, it would make your life that much richer as well as theirs. Whatever you've accomplished thus far in life, nothing is more satisfying than being able to help someone receive the gift of freedom. If you're interested in taking the deep dive and becoming trained, write this down. It's my Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors course. You know, many direct service providers are passionate about working with survivors. They understand their why in doing this work, but many don't understand their what to do or how to do it or when to do it and where and how much to do what. And unfortunately, we don't give permission for someone to be honest and say they don't have the knowledge and skills to effectively work with a population of survivors that have suffered trauma. Well, I have a course on how to work directly with survivors, including the 10 common areas of need and how to assess those areas of need, and then how to intervene more effectively and in trauma-informed ways. Complete my course, Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors at your own pace. I'll walk alongside you as you walk alongside survivors, sharing with you my almost 30 years of experience. If you're interested, you can find my free webinar on my website at celiawilliamson.com. And now on with the podcast. I agree with you. It takes daily work because every single day you're being inundated with all kinds of images and television shows and news reports that continue to turn that bias on. And so every single day you have to work on this because you will become lost again uh, without even having a conscious understanding that you may be treating people differently because you see them differently. I completely agree. And, you know, there is no having made it. I haven't made it. I have an awareness. And I know even now, particularly as I meet people online um, over Zoom, and I'm thinking particularly of people that I meet who are Africans, my because they have of the color of their skin, I have this instinctive 
response in me that I have to resist that I know better than them. It just comes up all the time. I've been taught since a child that white people know it all. And, you know, we've been the dominant cultural group in Australia. So, you know, I grew up, there were only people my colour of skin, my way of thinking, my language. Um, I think the worst I difference I had to um, come up against was whether you were Protestant or Catholic. Um, you know, so when I am confronted with someone who has a beautifully rich black skin, I am aware in myself that I have a bias against them in terms of thinking how much do they know, how much, how organised are they, and I and I hate to admit this, but I'm going to admit it because it's true, I am then surprised. Oh, hello, they have two master's degrees. Oh, hello, they have something to teach me. And so it's a constant, I was going to use the word battle. I don't know that it's a battle, but it's a constant job to keep our biases at bay, not to not to push them down, but to let them come up. You look at them and go, yep, that's there, it's automatic, but I'm not going to go down that path. Mm-hmm. So there's always a choice. Yeah, and I, I even know in, in, in my own country, even subtly, you know, being a, a, a brown-skinned person, if you're walking down the street or you're walking through the mall um, and a, a white person is walking and you're in the same path, it's it's sort of unconsciously both people recognize that you as the person of color should move so that that person yes. continues their path. Or, you know, if you're at a meeting and you're sitting down and somebody has to make copies, well, you people kind of look at you, you get up and go make the copies. Um, it's those type. And then as a person who has experienced this, you also have um, certain levels of privilege that I have as a woman or as a PhD or um, that uh, I have to also be con- like, I'm not given a pass because I'm a person of color. I have to also be conscious of what I do when I stop at a, at a stoplight at night and there's a young black guy walking down the street and my door, I realize my door is unlocked in my car. What goes through my mind? I have to acknowledge that. I have to not try to hide that from myself because I can't fix what I don't acknowledge. But if I acknowledge it, then I can grapple with it. And so, um, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a daily struggle. Yeah, and one of my goals in the work that I do is to normalise the conversation around bias because bias has been imbued with really negative connotations, you know, of judgment and finger-pointing, and we like to be able to, like most human beings, you know, we like to be able to point the finger at somebody else and go, you're biased, and we don't like it when someone says that back to us. What I want to do is to really normalise this, to flatten it out and go, we're all biased. It doesn't matter whether we're what skin colour we are, what race, language, gender, gender identity, you know, age, it doesn't matter. Bias is part of how we think as human beings. And let's just own it because, as you said, if we... We can't deal with stuff that we haven't owned or looked at or that we're aware of. 
And then if we can take all the guilt and shame out of it, then we're much better able to to deal with it in, in a positive way. And whether that's at a personal level or in the structures and processes that continue to perpetuate things like racism and sexism, um, you know, we can't deal with those either until we've looked at ourselves and said, I'm, a, I'm actually part of the, I'm part of the problem and I'm also part of the solution. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, even starting to say things like, it's okay that I'm not totally evolved yet. It's okay that I'm not perfect yet. It's okay that I don't know how to acknowledge you. What's what's the proper way to address you? Um, it's okay to to not have reached a level of wokeness or perfection that you like to think you you have reached. So, how do you work with people? who um, not only don't want to have the stigma attached or the shame attached, but they don't even see a problem? The short answer is I don't. (laughs) 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 Because, you know, it's the whole, you know, you you can lead a horse to water. The reality is not everybody sees what I see. And that doesn't mean that I'm seeing something that is not there but not all of us are ready to make this journey because it's confronting. Some people will more readily look at themselves and look at their businesses. However, I do believe we're moving slowly into a space where actually we're going to have to. I think, you know, I look back, I'm in my mid-60s. I look back over my life and think when my mother got married in the early 1950s, She had to leave work because she was a married woman. You know, I grew up in a time when children were seen and not heard. Women had their place where homosexuality was illegal, um, where in Australia our First Nations people weren't even recognised as people. So that's my childhood. We've come a long way and I think where the process is speeding up at the moment, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, we talk about, we talk about bias, we talk about racism, we talk about sexism, ageism, all of these discriminations, and we want to fix them. It's not just a matter of um, rallying against things or protesting. We're actually saying we need to fix this. Now, this, well, for me, it will be the rest of my lifetime's work, I'm not sure that we will ever get there if there is a there to get to. But I do believe when we are moving as a whole in that direction where we want to address these things because we realise it's not helpful. It's not helpful for those who suffer the discrimination, but it's also not helpful for those who perpetuate it because they're trapped in a very limited way of looking at the world they, they're trapped in their own really narrow paradigms and boundaries. That's not healthy either. So I think there will come a time, maybe two generations down the track, I don't know, where we're really, there will, we won't have a choice because we will have all started to evolve. You know, the evolution in my lifetime I think has been huge. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, uh, you know, it's it's not that 
white people need to um, go inward and, you know, discover themselves because necessarily um, they need to help other people. Again, I think even that is a part of the bias, but going inward to understand that the people you interact with, there's richness in in those people that that's what's the goodness about it is you move in a diverse neighborhood, not because you're trying to uh, show somebody that you are unbiased, but because diversity is rich to your life. If somebody's in a school system and that school is diverse, that's that's added richness to your life. If you have friends that are diverse, that's just added richness to your life. So, you know, I kind of think of it like that for myself, even if I can learn about people who are very different than me and learn in a way that is um, social and creating friendships and not just going to workshops or reading books, but engaging with people, then somehow I learn that, you know, that person, okay, maybe I have a bias against this whole group of people, but I have two people that represent that group and I really like them. And so now it challenges myself to really expand and and challenge my own thoughts. And so do you do workshops with people and um, help people become aware or what, what happens at those types of workshops? Yeah, no, I do. I um, I work with um, businesses and corporations, government departments and sporting bodies. And I always start off with an introductory session around, um, around bias and what it is. And I call it what's your water because when I really started to delve into this um, field of unconscious bias, I came across an old Chinese proverb that says a fish is the last one to know what water is. And that's how it's a metaphor that I use for how unaware we are um, of our biases. So yes, certainly um, I I do work, I do work with with teams, um, you know, staff um, teams. Um, I don't work with individuals because I really, because our bias, like why we can uh, look at ourselves, and I do actually have uh, an individual program that I that I um, can people can take themselves through. My focus is on looking at how do our how do we address our bias in relationship with one another. And so, part of uh, some of the other programs I do is looking at well, how does bias and conflict intersect? bias and our workplace culture, bias and communication and bias and and managing change. And I've put, um, I've got a certification program now where I'm training other people to do what I'm doing. And part of that is actually they must do this personal work first because you cannot go and talk to other people about biases unless you actually looked at yourself. So, you know, my trainers um, need to do that personal work first. But when I'm dealing with, say, a company, um, I don't take them there because that's such a personal journey and you actually have to want to do that. But, you know, it's about building awareness initially. Mm-hmm. And so when you say it's your personal journey and you have to want to do that, and that is why 
you must uh, say that you're not going to drag people who don't want to go. You work with people who want to take this journey. And so how tell us a little bit about how you can people or businesses or agencies can get involved in this in this training and go through this journey. Sure. Well, um, you can have a look at my website. I'll be um, having all the information up there. So that's bronwilliams.com. Um, my email is info at bronwilliams.com. Stalk me on, on LinkedIn. I'm there. Uh, that's a great place to, um, to engage. I love LinkedIn because it's such a vibrant um, business platform. But certainly, yeah, look, reach out. Let's have a conversation about what you're looking for and see how we intersect and what I can do to, uh, to assist a company or a business. And do you, um, is there a certain number of weeks or certain number of engagements or do you, are they individualized based on the agency or the corporation? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly depending on where they're at in their own journey in this. A lot of people at this stage, because this field is still relatively new uh, when it comes to the corporate space. So a lot of people are quite happy to just do the introductory uh, session and, you know, perhaps come back um, at a later date for more. Um, others come already having done a survey in, with their staff to find out what the issues are. So I will combine, say, um, the introductory session with one on conflict because that was something that came up um, in, from their staff survey. So I certainly do that. Um, I will be um, running I'm going to be running a workshop, a free workshop in June for those people who may be looking at doing my certification program. And so that all that information will be up on LinkedIn in the next week or two. Oh, wonderful. So the people that do the certification program, are they people that then go out and do work with, um, you know, unconscious bias or are they actually the corporations that are getting the, the training? I think it's it's a combination of two. Um, the two areas that I see where this works well is those people who are leadership coaches because this information is uh, an ideal um, resource to have in their toolbox when toolbox when they're working with leaders and you know often they're they're leaders in executive positions so. Um, finding that coaches are people who are finding this helpful, but also then people who are sort of in the HR management space who want to be able to bring this sort of training to their workplace because it becomes, um, it's much more cost effective for me to train someone who then goes and trains in their workplace and can deliver that training over and over again um, rather than that company employing me to come in as a consultant over and over again to be able to do things. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so for the certification program, how long does it take and how much is it a, do they do it personally or is it live in a group? How does that work? Yeah, it's a combination of both. The first part is a 10-part um, a personal uh, program which is um, identifying personal bias and that's in a sense the this is the space in which I'm encouraging people to find their bias stories like the, 
the ones that I've told because I feel it's important that if you're going to be a trainer, you need to be able to say to the people you train, I've done this journey, I am doing this journey, and to have those personal stories. So that takes about, that's a six-week program which um, people go through at their own pace. It's online. I'm always there as a resource and there is um, a debrief with me at the end. And it's when that is finished that people can then either say, look, yes, this has been fantastic and I want to take it further, or they say, look, this has been good but I don't want to take it further. So I want to be able to give people that option rather than signing up for a big program and then I get partway through it and go, just this is not for me. So I'll take them through that part and that first part is 500 Australian dollars then we move those who want to then move into um, the next actual certification program which is um, a six-part program around three or four months we'll um, we'll take you through through that and then that's um, another four and a half thousand Australian and is that when they go through the the second phase is that with the the corporate team or the agency team or is it still personalized no, this is this is them working through what they will then be delivering. Oh. So it's me training them in what that they will be delivering. There will be uh, weekly um, because I will put through say ten or twenty people at a time through um, a session, and we will have weekly Zoom meetings to talk about what we've been learning and what we've been getting out of this answers questions. So it's um, so the training is online, you access it online, and then we have the, um, again, like it's all online, but just the world we live in, isn't it? But it's great because then I can talk to people in the US or the UK. It doesn't have to just be based here in Australia. That's amazing. And I'm just curious, what do you get more men, more women, more white, more people of colour? What does the demographic look like? Um, at this stage, interestingly, I am finding more women are attracted to it and I don't know whether that's because we're, we just have a deeper awareness of this at the moment. Um, so, yes, it's generally more women and it's really a mix of women of colour and um, and women who are white. But often it'll be people who are, as I said, in the coaching space, in the mediation space, or in already in the DEI space, you know, who are understanding um, about diversity, equity and inclusion. That's amazing. And any words of wisdom or advice for people who are, uh, you know, they're trying to be good advocates, um, you know, they they may not even see or know that they have a problem, right? But you hear this saying all the time, I don't see color. I treat everybody the same. I treat everybody like I treat myself. And um I, I don't I don't see an issue at all. And I just want to do good work. Any mm. any wisdom or advice for them? I want to applaud them for first of all, for wanting to do good work. Like that's that's a great human ability. However, we have to be careful that we're not deceiving ourselves about why. Why am I doing this? Why do I want this? Am I doing it to feel good about myself? And look, helping other people always makes us feel good, but that cannot be the motivator. 
That cannot be the motivator because in, then we are, we already have a disproportionate power. If we're the, the person who has something to give to somebody who has less, there's already a disproportionate power there. We don't need to make that even more by then actually, in a sense, wanting somebody, something from the person that we're helping we, we, you know, wanting that feel-good moment and only helping them because in the end it's feeding our own insecurities. So, yet it all comes back to self-awareness. Think, you know, really think about those words, I don't see colour, because I'm sorry, that's impossible. I'm actually, I'm looking at you and I notice that your skin colour is different to mine. Um, yes, we do see colour. And that colour registers that you have had, or it should register, that you have had a different life experience to mine. You have a different accent to me. That will tell you that you have had a different life experience to mine. I've got grey hair. You don't. That tells you that I have had different life experience to you. I think we need to start looking at the differences, not to separate, but to notice and go, hallelujah, difference isn't a threat, it's an asset. And then seeing what can, how can we draw all those differences together and work together? Well, thank you so much, Bron. I mean, I feel like you are uh, a treasure to us and you have voluntarily uh, took a look at yourself and said, I'm going to delve deep into this. And not only that, but this is so important that I think it could help other people through their journey as they're trying to be the best human being that they can be. And so I just applaud your work. And I'm so glad that I, I found you and we got connected. And I hope you will come back periodically and just share with us and remind us that, you know, once again, are we are we doing our work? Because if we do our self-work, then we'll be all that more effective in working with other people. Oh, thanks, Celia. Look, I have loved talking with you. I've loved your questions because they draw out answers that, um, in a sense, as I have to answer your questions, I answer them for myself over and over again. And that's a really good thing because it keeps me fresh and in this space. That was Brian Williams, unconscious bias specialist, doing important work. And if we want to be the best advocate we can be, then we always have to be working on ourselves, sharpening our tool. We're the tool that we use to help other people. We talk about walking alongside survivors. If we're walking alongside, we have to have a good and sharp tool. We have to be the healthiest person that we can be. And that means that we don't have all the answers. And we shouldn't assume that we need all the answers. As we're walking alongside people, we're building a relationship of trust. And that relationship is reciprocal. They have things to teach us. We have things to teach them, and together we grow. We all have unconscious bias, and we all should be in our daily recovery program. I call it similar to a 12-step program. Every day that I get up, 
I know that I am inundated with commercials, with television programs, with news reports, with books um, that bias me every day that show me that a group of people are better than another group of people, that the age of a particular person is better than another, another age of a person, the gender of a person is better than other genders of people. And every day I have to acknowledge that that information is coming into me and that I am buying into that because I can't fix what I don't acknowledge. If I acknowledge it, if I don't try to squelch that voice, but instead turn that voice up so that I can hear that bias, because when I hear that bias inside myself, then I can start another conversation with myself. You understand? People say, don't talk to yourself. You'd be crazy. I say, always talk to yourself. It might be the most intelligent conversation you hear all day. So when you start to hear yourself, if I see that person in the car next to me, and I have certain thoughts about that person, I want to acknowledge that to myself so that I can argue with myself and say, wait a minute, why are you thinking that about that person? You don't know that person. Have you met that person? You don't know their background. You don't know how hard they work. You don't know their struggle. And if I continue to do that to myself every day, day in and day out, then I learn to make that bias conscious. Because like Bron said, it's never going to go away because every single day, They're putting that back into you, back into you, back into you. And you have to continue to acknowledge it. You have to continue to challenge it. And you have to continue to fight it. If you want to be an effective anti-trafficking advocate or social justice advocate, then you have to continue to work on yourself. And that is a critical component of working on yourself. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.